0: I don't, uh, I don't often comment on, on the hymns and the songs we sing. I, I, I would like to make a couple of observations, though, this morning. One being just that um, the song, Saving One, it's a beautiful song, it's a wonderful song. The theology is good. There is an interesting thing to me, though, and it comes down to the choice of words. You know, when you're writing anything, you have to make a choice. I I probably would prefer, I would prefer. I think it's more theologically correct to say, and everyone, and everyone who calls upon his name, they shall be saved. Not and anyone. Now, that's splitting hairs, you might think. But it is an important hair to split Because, um, and it comes down to our sermon today, because the simple act of in your own mind and heart calling on Christ, in your own mind, in your own heart, by your own will, by your own determination, does not save you. If that were the case, an atheist might in one moment... Be saved. All he would have to do is determine to say, I'm going to hedge my bet. I don't believe really, but if they're right, I'm going to suffer and I don't want to suffer, so bow my head and say, Jesus, save me. Please be the Lord of my life. Now go live as an atheist. That would be, and anyone who calls on his name, they may be, they are saved or they shall be saved. But rather, biblically, we see that it's everyone who calls on the name of the Lord. And who are they who call on the name of the Lord? And that's where the sermon comes in. They are the ones who God has put in Christ. They call on the name of the Lord. Every one of them calls on the name of the Lord, and they are saved. that is so important. Heath and I were talking this morning about this very subject. And uh, one of the great... 20th century theologians and teachers uh, Dr. John Gerstner um, and you can still find him he's dead but you can still find him on the internet and he teaches this very point the danger of Rome is that they say the Roman Catholic Church says faith plus works leads to justification and they would say you'd say, you can't, you can't be saved by your works. they say, I'm not being saved by my works. Only. I'm being saved because I believe in Christ. And I work. Meritoriously. To my credit, I work and therefore God saves me. He justifies me. That is a fatal flaw. Meritorious work has no place in biblical gospel. But the opposite is also a problem. And that's what we hear in our modern churches so often. Faith alone leads to justification alone. That is an equally erroneous teaching. The biblical gospel is faith alone. And Gersner says you can substitute Christ alone. But faith alone is a biblical phrase also. Faith alone leads to justification plus works. Works not meritorious, but works which flow out of justification. If you cut works out of the equation completely, you are just as erroneous as the Catholic who places works prior to justification. It makes it meritorious. If you don't have the the very uh, lifeblood of justification flowing out into the action of obedience, you're not saved. That's what the Bible says. What What proof text might we use for that? James chapter 2. Faith without works is dead faith. It is not real faith. And so, let's be careful how we speak. Faith does not save you. Faith, faith does not save you. Christ saves you. So everyone who calls on Christ's name, it assumes faith, but faith is a gift of God. Christ saves. He justifies. He leads to your working. He leads to your believing. Christ is the end-all, be-all. This is why I tie it together with... I, li- I like that song, by the way. It's not a problem. Okay? I would change the word to everyone. But I'm not into that. But so, so, why would I bring up... Why would I bring up Be Thou My Vision? Because Be Thou My Vision says that Christ is in one verse your delight, in the next verse your treasure, in the next verse, your ruler. That is a biblical progression. God, the scales fall off the eyes. Faith delights in Christ, who is the treasure and the Lord. Without Him being your delight, He's not your Lord. I don't care how much you say it. If He's not your delight, He's not your Lord. If He's not your treasure, He's not your Lord. He's not your ruler. He's not your king. In the personal sense. He's the king of the universe, but not in the personal sense. He's not your king. So treasuring Christ becomes the, the, the test by which we see do we have this faith which just, which in Christ justifies. Christ is the justifier of those who believe in Him. So we just, theology is so uh, exact. And I, I really want to turn our minds to this exactness in Paul's thinking in Ephesians. In Ephesians, we have what might be said to be the heart of Paul. The theology of Paul is best displayed right here in this book. Better than Romans. Better than Corinthians. Better than Thessalonians. Better than Timothy or Titus. This is the book. If you want to see Paul's theology, this is your book. This is it. Ephesians. All the other ones, don't get me wrong, are great, but they they don't get to as quickly or as succinctly as Ephesians to the heart of who Paul is. It's his theology, pure and simple in Ephesians 1 through 3, which lays the groundwork for his practice in verses four, chapters 4 through 6. And that, by, um, no, by no doubt, is the right progression. If you show me a person who is doing chapters 4 through 6... Without chapters one through three, I'll show you a person who believes they're earning their way to heaven. If you show me a person who who believes chapters one through three and doesn't do four through six, they've fallen into the second error I just described in the beginning there, and that is they think faith alone, without Christ and without justification, really saves them. They don't have to do anything. There's no work in their life that points and fruit that comes. So therefore, they're not saved. The biblical gospel is that Christ justifies us. And then we live a life that is flowing out of that justification, obedient to God. Chapters 1 through 3 come before chapters 4 through 6. Because they rightly come before it. In our own theological understanding of the Bible, we come to understand that orthodox belief leads to orthoprax orthopraxy, the practice of orthodoxy. It's not enough to leave the doctrine in the book. The book must come into your heart and then flow out in obedience unto God, as Bruce said. That's our right and reasonable service. It's worship. It's worship, as we talked about last week. And I I just want to kind of bring us in. We've we've broken it down uh, phrase by phrase and paragraph by paragraph. And now I want to back us up and let's look at the whole first two chapters. To just kind of put us all in the same place. And I toured with a couple of outlines and I, I, I had an outline that uh, some would love so much. And then I, I'll, I'll give it to you. Person, in these two chapters we see person, plan, purpose, people. It's a wonderful uh, P-led outline. I didn't like it. <laughs> I got an in out of Aaron. That's, that's a good thing. <laughs> that 's maybe a first, <laughs> and it 's true that outline is true person if you want to write that one down person purpose person plan purpose people all right but I came up with another outline the first thing I want us to see this morning in our sermon is that god 's grace god 's grace in eternity past god 's grace in eternity past chapter one is is really. Uh, interesting to me. I want you to just kind of scan the page there. We're not going to read any, we're going to read some particular verses. We're not going to focus in on one verse in chapter one. We're going to look at the whole chapter. There's something conspicuously missing in chapter one. I'll give you a second. What's missing from verses three through fourteen, what's missing in verses three through fourteen is any work any action, any thought, any real, any real uh, existence lived out existence of a human there, we're not yet in existence in verses three through fourteen in the real sense of physicalness we're not born yet. Paul's reached back into eternity and he's now talking about the eternal grace. Of God. And this eternal grace is expressed concisely in the covenant of redemption. The covenant of redemption. The covenant of redemption is the covenant which God has between Himself, with Himself, for Himself. It's all about Himself. It's not about anything outside of Himself. It's for Him, by Him, through Him, to Him. It's f- it's It's Him. It's an expression of his own love for himself. It includes things outside of himself secondarily, but primarily it's about God. And we see the covenant of redemption in chapter 1 verses 3 through 14, the focus of our look in chapter 1 today, and we see it in these ways. We see it played out in the electing grace of God the Father. The person in Ephesians 1 through 2, chapters 1 through 2, is the Godhead. That is the person. Anyone else mentioned is mentioned only in their relation to the Godhead. They're never mentioned as the subject. They're mentioned as the object of the statements. They're mentioned as peripheral, secondary subjects, secondary objects. They're never the primary focus. Paul in chapters 1 through 2 focuses on the person of the Godhead. He focuses on God three in one, the Trinity. And we see it in chapter one that the covenant of grace, or the covenant of redemption, is being planned, purposed, that he might save a people. Look in the electing grace of God the Father in verses one. I mean chapter one, verses three through six. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ. With every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Here it is. Even as He chose us in Him, in Christ. Before the foundation of the world. That we should be holy and blameless before Him in love. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. To the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the beloved. In this first set of verses, we see the whole first outline I gave you. The person is God the Father. The plan is redemption. The the, the purpose of the plan is in verse 6. To the praise of His glorious grace. That's the purpose. That's why He's doing everything He does. And we see the people. They are the elect. And that's just going to be unfolded over and over and over in these first two chapters. He's just going to keep going back to the well. He's going to keep going back to the point of the person is God. The the plan is redemption. The purpose is for His glory to be praised. The people are the elect. He phrases them differently. The elect, the, he's going to get into the body, the church, the kingdom, but it's always that being unfolded in more depth as we go forward. So, we see his electing grace, and this electing grace is most specifically spoken of in verse 4. Even as he chose us, elected us in Christ, before the foundation of the world, which is why I said this is God's grace in eternity past. This is what God did before the world began, before the foundation of the world. It is right to say that God, in His mind, in this covenant action between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, saved the elect before He created anything. It is a prior action to creation. That does away with the false understanding that God created this beautiful, wonderful world that Satan and man in league of rebellion against God ruined. And then God had to do something about it. He had to come back and fix it. Because it had been messed up. And so plan B started. And some people would even go to say plan B was started and it failed and so he started a new plan with Noah and it failed and he started a new plan with Abraham and it failed and he started a new plan with Moses and it failed and he started one with David and he never even got started on it before it wasn't any good so he had to come back and send his son. And it's almost going to fail and then he's going to come again and say before you mess it up again I'm just going to end it all and start eternity. That's How twisted some people get about this eternal plan. No. God is not responding when He elects. He elects prior to creation. Therefore, it is His always and forever plan. It is eternal. That should bring you great comfort. Because what you didn't do to start a relationship, you can't undo with what you do in this life. That should give great assurance to you that God started on a plan. And being the almighty, all-powerful, eternal God that He is, is bringing that plan, as Paul says, to completion. And you should have full confidence in that. That He will not fail. So, we see this eternal plan, this eternal electing grace of God the Father. If we look at the verse, even as he chose us, our election is in Christ. Don't go to the extreme that some theologians have to get around election of individuals by saying that he elected Christ and not individuals. That would make no sense of this sentence. Even as he chose who? Us. He chose us. For all you Bardians out there. Karl Barth's disciples. Be careful. He he, he created a new doctrine. Christ is elect. That's a fact. In the covenantal terms of redemption, Christ was elected to bring about the redemption of His people. But we are elect also as individuals. And we are placed into Christ in our election. We aren't elect on our own merit. We're elect on Christ's merit. Okay. There again, you didn't do anything to get in the relationship. You can't do anything to get out of the relationship. You are elect by God and placed in Christ, who is the elect and chosen Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. And so, don't confuse and combine those two things. It's two separate things, though they interchange with one another. So, the elect and grace of God, underneath this big title, the covenant of redemption, is eternal and is expressed by the Father. And it is our election, and we are placed in Christ, in Him. And it happens prior to the foundation of the world. Why do I bring out that statement? Because what did you do prior to the foundation of the world? What did you do as an individual? What did you do? The the correct answer is to say nothing. 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 You did nothing. God did everything. You did nothing. And that electing purpose is shown to us for a side reference. We won't won't go there today, right now, because some of you get confused. We start flipping around a lot. Romans chapter 9 details that for us very specifically. So that his purpose of election might stand, God chose Jacob and not Esau. Not seeing anything good or evil in them, he chose them prior to their birth. So that his purpose of election might stand. Jacob wasn't a good boy, so God loved him. And Esau was a bad boy, so God hated him. Both of them were bad boys. And God loved Jacob. And he passed over Esau. And so God's election is therefore bound up and based on His love for Himself in eternity past and His desire or plan to show forth His redeeming love for the purpose of His praise and glory that the person of the Godhead might be revealed. The full purpose of the Godhead might be shown forth. Some of you are very offended in your hearts right now because I haven't mentioned you enough. I've only mentioned you in the the bad terms and not the good terms. In the non-existing terms, only existing in the mind of God, and and you you want to play a part in it. It's okay. It offends a lot of people. It offends a lot of people. It used to offend me dearly when I heard people talk like this. And then God... By His great grace, humbled me and showed me the glory of His plan. The glory of His plan can be summed up in regard to us this way. I'm a failed creature, and if anything depended on me, it would fail. God is not a creature, and He has not failed. Therefore, nothing He does does will fail. It is perfect. And it will sustain itself for all of eternity. So when people say, do you ever doubt your salvation? For split seconds of time, yes. Until this is ministered back to me from my spirit and the Holy Spirit they say, he has not failed. He has not failed. So his redemptive covenant is being played out in this electing grace of God the Father. Secondly, in this passage, we see the redeeming grace of God the Son. The electing grace of God the Father leads to the redeeming grace of God the Son. Look at verse 7. In Him, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan. "...for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth." The plan was redemption, the purpose was the glory of His grace. "...in Him we have obtained an inheritance in Christ, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that He, we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory." We've hit a phrase that you should be now hearing over and over again, it should ring in your ears, and that is, in Christ, in Him, in whom, in Christ Jesus, in the Lord Jesus Christ. Throughout Ephesians, you're going to hear this phrase at least, at least 34 times, Paul says, in Christ, in Him, in whom, in the Lord Jesus Christ, in Christ Jesus he drives home the point that everything that we receive, we receive in Christ. So why do I say the heart of Paul is exposed in this book more so than any other? Because of that phrase. Because Paul's heart is to know nothing among you except what? Christ Jesus and Him crucified. The heart of Paul's theology is Christ. Christ. That's the heart of his, of his theology. That's the treasure of His life. That's the delight of His soul. That's everything that means anything to Him. Christ. And Him crucified. And so we have then this covenant of redemption, the electing grace of God. And the redeeming grace of Christ the Son. The Father set out about a plan which the Son said, I will bring about through my life, through my life. Redemptive life. My my life of active obedience and passive obedience on the cross and resurrection and ascension. That's how the plan will be established through me. This is a conversation we don't have to really go into full detail. It's not recorded for us. But yet we know it happened through this passage and others like it. That God set out about a plan and Christ the Son said, I will carry out the plan." And so how did He carry out in redemption? Verse 7. In Him we have redemption through His blood. And so the redeeming grace of the Son is in the core of verses 7 through 12. Look at that. The redemption is objective. It is through His blood. Through His life. Blood is meaning of life here. Life is in the blood. And so his redeem- the redemption is objective. It's not subjective. It's not up for a vote how we become redeemed. It's done. It's completed. It's historical. It's finished. And it was finished in the life, death, burial, resurrection of Christ. And ascension back to the right hand of the Father. So His redemption is objective and it's in His blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses, it is applied. This redemption is objective, and this obje- redemption is applied. By how, how do we know it's applied? Through the forgiveness of sins. It's not a potential salvation. It is salvation. I had that conversation with a dear friend this week, who is also a pastor. Very troubling to me. Listen. The Bible presents to us an overarching picture of the death of Christ. And that is the picture of what is known as penal substitutionary atonement. God put us at one with Himself through the substitutionary sacrifice of His Son. By paying the penalty of our sin and transferring to us the righteousness of Christ. That is the core and the essence of the redeeming grace of God in His Son, Christ. And if you lose penal or substitutionary or atonement, you lose it all. In my estimation, in biblical terms. You lose it all. If Christ and what me and my friend were arguing about discussing intently was he didn't want to say penal. He wanted to say substitutionary atonement. And when I took him to Isaiah 53 and said he laid on him the sins of us all. He said that all is everybody in the world. And I said then everybody in the world Will be with us in heaven. No. Why not? Because it's only potential. The the payment is only potential. It's only made to be a possibility. What in this passage is a possibility? In Him we have redemption. We have redemption. We we have it or it's potential. Paul, Paul would say we have. It's finished. It's complete. It's done. We have redemption in Him, in Christ, through His blood, His substitutionary atonement. How can we have that? Because it was subjectively applied. The forgiveness of sins. So if God forgave my sins in Christ, then they are forgiven. And if He comes back and push me, pushes me into hell, then He's an unjust God. Don't play with the redemptive work of God. It is penal. He paid the penalty of our sin. He laid on Him the iniquity of us all. Then He said, What do you think all means? Well, I think it's defined for us very clearly throughout the Scriptures, and that is it's all who Christ died for. His sacrifice was sufficient. To the point that he did not have to die again if one more elect sinner was to be elected and saved. He paid an ultimate price, a sufficient price. But effectively, his sacrifice was given for the elect, for the saved. If we say it any other way, then we're monkeying with God's eternal plan and we're changing it. And we better be careful. We stand on shifting sand. Because this same man would not say everyone will go to heaven. He he in the end puts the last card to be fall into place to be faith, which comes prior to regeneration. And I'm afraid you lose the gospel there. What's the good news of that? If it's only a potential salvation, what's the good news? You mean to tell me Paul went in the synagogue and risked his life to say, hey, somebody might could get saved? I don't buy it. Paul risked his life to go in and say, God has saved his people. And there is salvation in no other name but Jesus Christ. And at that, they wanted to stone and kill the apostle. And so, be careful. It is an electing grace. It is a redeeming grace. And that redemption is objective and it is applied. It is subjective. It is objective and subjective. But the objective comes prior to the subjective application to your life. And if you get it backwards or get it missing something, you miss it all. According to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight, making known the mystery of his will. According to the purpose which he set forth in Christ. This idea of a plan is not something I came up with. God says it right here through the pen of Paul as a plan for the fullness of time. For the fullness of time. The plan is what? To redeem. And what is the purpose of redeeming men? That in Him, all things, to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. That is the purpose, is to unite all things in Him to the praise of His glory. Verse 12. The end of verse 12. So, we have the electing grace, the redeeming grace. We see the preserving grace of God, the Spirit. When I tell you this is about a person, and the person is the Godhead, they're all visible in this passage. God the Father is electing. God the Son is redeeming. God the Spirit is preserving those who are saved, who are elect. Look at verse 13. In Christ you also... When you heard the word of truth and the gospel of your salvation and believed in Christ, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. The purpose keeps being presented. The praise of His glory. The praise of His glory. The praise of His glory. This is about Him, primarily. So what does the Spirit do? He preserves. He unites. He is the mortar which holds the lively stones together in the temple of God. He is the one who keeps us until the day of salvation. You're not keeping yourself. He's keeping you. He's keeping you. At any moment He was withdrawn from you, you would go your own wicked way and you would be damned. But that's impossible because the Spirit is in you. And so we see that what the Reformers called perseverance of the saints, and what they meant by that was, I believe, the preservation of the saints. If you read their definition of perseverance, perseverance in our day gives this term of trying hard. And they didn't mean that at all. They meant God has so effectively worked that the Spirit of God is in us, therefore we are being carried along. To the final, to the finish. We are straining, but we're straining by the grace of God, in the Spirit of God, for the finish, for the goal, for the for the high calling which He has called us with. And so that's the picture here. If God be for you, who can be against you? Who would separate you from the love of God is Paul's question. He's teaching Preservation. Who will separate you in Romans 8, verse 30 and forward? Not height, not depth. Not life, not death. Not people on the earth, nor angels. Not even any created thing can separate you from the love of God. So, when your friend says, I know nothing else can separate me, but I'm afraid I've separated myself. Your answer could be, to caused them to think, are you created? Well, yes. Well, right here it says, no created thing can separate you from the love of God. So either you were never saved or you are saved. You can't have been saved and lost yourself and now you're going to somehow get saved again. See, you don't ever want to dispel their fear by teaching them preservation. They may truly be dressing with whether they're saved or not. But what you do want to say is if you've ever been saved, you are saved. And nothing can change that. God has spoken the final word. In His electing, redeeming, and preserving grace. He is in us and He's preserving us till we can receive the inheritance which we already have the title deed for. We already have it. Secondly, God's grace... Is not shown just in eternity past, but is shown in the life of individual believers in chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. We've seen this. As we've journeyed through, we see that God has eternal grace in the, God's grace is in eternity past. Now we see God's grace is in the life of the individual believer, verses 1 through 10. We see in chapter 1, the covenant of redemption, what theologians call the covenant of redemption. And we see in chapter 2 what they call the covenant of grace. The covenant of grace. Um, I shared a little snippet of it in the past message, and I'll quickly say it this way. The covenant of redemption God made for Himself, by Himself, through Himself, to Himself. And then the covenant of grace, we don't see it revealed until after Adam has sinned. In the garden, Adam operated out of what is the covenant of creation, or the covenant of works, as our children learn it in the catechism. If you obey, you will live. If you disobey and eat the fruit, you will surely die. What did Adam do? He ate the fruit. And when he ate the fruit, he died. And all of those who would come after him died with him, for he was their representative. He was their federal head. That covenant of works was broken by Adam, Hosea 6, verse 7. They, like Adam, broke the covenant. The writer of Hosea, Hosea says, the prophet of God says, that God was in league, he was in covenant with Adam. And Adam broke the covenant. We see in Genesis 3 then, the unfurling, the unveiling of what is true in eternity past, and that is the covenant of grace. And the covenant of grace is the fact that what? God did not kill Adam. What did Adam deserve? To die immediately. But he didn't die in his body. He died in his spirit, but not in his body. What did God do, though? Did God just overlook his sin and say, Well, he's a man. He made a mistake. It's I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Adam. No. God acted very intentionally to paint for them the picture of the Son that would come, that would crush the head of Satan, and He did that by sacrificing an animal and clothing them in its skin. Because God took their sin and laid it on Christ, and He took Christ's righteousness and clothed them in it. The Gospel's in Genesis 3, not just in 15, but it's in the sacrifice in Genesis 3. And God makes it very evident that He was painting a picture He intended to be fulfilled throughout and perpetually. How do we know? Because Cain brought offerings of fruit which he made with his own hands. And Abel brought an offering of a slain animal. And God accepted the animal and not the fruit. Remember, most Old Testament sacrifices were grain and fruit offerings. What is God doing? He's punishing Cain for leaving the type. The type in the shadow of Christ... Cain had left it in his heart. He did not believe the gospel. He did not believe the covenant of grace. He violated it. He violated it. And Abel kept it. He believed in it. He placed his faith in God. And so he was saved. By Christ. Abel was saved by Christ in the covenant of grace. And the covenant of grace is unfolded for us progressively through time. We see it more clearly in the covenant with Noah. We see it more clearly with the covenant which God builds on top of that one with Abraham. We see it more clearly when He builds on top of that the Mosaic covenant. And the Davidic covenant and finally the New Covenant. And we see it applied individually in chapter 2. Our condition outside of Christ. The life of the believer before Christ is in verses 1 through 3. Dead. In your trespasses and sins, walking according to the course of this world, under the influence of the power of the air, a disobedient son, under the wrath of God, carrying out all your fleshly desires. That's your condition. That's your life. That was the life of everyone. And then we see that God works in the covenant of grace. We might say we see Adam in one through three, and we see Christ and his people in four. Through 10. We see Adam in his kind in 1 through 3. We see Christ in his kind in verses 4 through 10. Every human, every human is represented under Adam in 1 through 3. And all the elect of God are represented by Christ in 4 and through 10. We are in Christ. And so, what do we have in Christ? The riches of his mercy, the love which he has loved us with, and he has expressed it to us when we were dead in our trespasses, making us alive with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places. For by grace, verse 8, you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. It's all the gift of God. Grace, faith, salvation, it's all God's gift, so that no one may boast. We see the work of God, the work of Christ, and then finally the work of the Holy Spirit. For we are His, God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which He prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. In verse 5, chapter 1, He's going to say, walk in the Spirit. This is the work of the Spirit. Our sanctification is co-work with the Spirit. And so we see the God's grace in the life of an individual believer. And finally we see God's grace in the life of the covenant community. In verses 11 through 12 we have a parallel. All the Gentiles outside of Christ, before they were in Christ, are alienated. From the commonwealth of Israel. Strangers to the covenants of promise. Having no hope and without God in the world. They're uncircumcised. Without hope cut off from the people of Israel, having no idea about Christ nor His covenant of promise. That's every Gentile, Paul says, condition. And then, we see the community in Christ. Both Jews and Gentiles in Christ, in the community of the covenant. In verses beginning in 13 and going till the end in verse 22. Christ in His life and death broke down the dividing wall of the ordinances of the ceremonial law. Keeping the moral law, He has now become our Savior. And in Him, we no longer have to keep these ordinances. He's preached peace to us, and then we see in verse 18, For through Him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So all three persons of the Godhead are here also. So now we're not strangers. He's reversed our condition. We're not strangers. We're now fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord in him. You also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. If I was to summarize these two chapters, I would say it like this. God has, before eternity, chosen His people. He has set them apart in His Son, Jesus Christ. That He might save them by redeeming them. For the praise of His glorious grace. Period. New sentence. This is obviously seen through His church. Through His church. Which is joined together by His Spirit. Indwelt with His presence. And busting forth, bursting forth with His glory to the ends of the earth. The mission of the church is that God's glory might consume the earth. You say, why should we go to Constantine and do mission work, ministry work? Why should we do that? Why should we waste our time down there? There's so few who might believe. Because the glory of God needs to shine there through the gospel of His Son and the works that come from the gospel of mercy. Why would you go, Carlton, to another country? There's so many lost people here. Why go over there? Why not stay here? Because the glory of our God must shine in that place also. So He has equipped believers, I believe in this body, to go and shine in those places, in those dark places. And so the church, one mission really, is summed up in... The glory of God. Until His glory shines in His kingdom throughout all of the universe, the church has a mission. The church has a goal. The church has a purpose. The church that doesn't do that purpose will cease to be a church. And my challenge to you, if God in His eternal wisdom has chosen and saved you in His Son, Jesus Christ, Why? Why are you not bursting forth with His glory? If if your life isn't representative of His glory, why? I can't answer that question for you, but I beg you to find the answer. Why? Second question in application. If God, in His eternal wisdom has chosen to save you in his son and your your the glory of God is shining in your life what should ever discourage you discouragement only comes when my eyes get focused on this life and stop being focused on the treasure As long as the eyes are on the treasure, there's no discouragement. When the eyes get turned downward, now I'm discouraged. So if He has eternally saved you through His wise plan in His Son, Jesus Christ, redeeming you to Himself, why would you ever be discouraged? Final question of application. If God has saved you. By His eternally wise plan in His Son, Jesus Christ. What are you not willing to do in obedience to Him? See, because some of you it's easier to go to another country. And you won't go to Constantine. Even closer to home, you won't love your wife or your husband or your children in your own home. And for some of you, you'll do a real good job of loving your family, but you wouldn't dare go overseas. And so, my question is, why would you not do whatever He has called you to do, knowing that He has saved you by His eternal wisdom in His Son? So these, these questions have to be answered in order. Why are you not sharing, show, showing forth his glory? That's an important question. Once you've wrestled there, then secondly, you know we must come to a grips with if our life is, is, uh, is, is going forward to all these places, and if it's not, why is it not? What am I not willing to do in obedience to him? And that that really is chapters one and two. Paul calling us to this vision of an eternal plan lived out in real time through the church for God's glory. Let's pray.